breaking news coming from outside the city of Manaus, Brazil, where locals have reported a strange phenomenon that occurred in the Amazon rainforest outside the city limits. We now go to our field reporter, Elisa Garvey, from our sister news correspondent, the Chicago Globe. Elisa, are you there? Yes, Meredith, thank you. Outside of the city of Manaus, a very bright, strange green light that lasted more than a minute was reported about 50 miles west of the city in the direction of the Amazon's Zhao National Park in the early hours of the morning. Reports indicate an area owned by the Heidel Corporation known as the Manaus National Resource Plant, a branch of the Heidel Corp responsible for the export of lumber, rubber, soy, and livestock. Here is a satellite image of the area, known locally as the SCAR. This area has made headlines over the last decade from environmental groups protesting deforestation on a large scale, an area of about 93,000 square miles visible from space. And this is what the locals found when they woke up this morning. Elisa, are you saying that what we're seeing now is a live feed of the same area of the SCAR? Yes, I am currently flying over the same area, and as you can see, the scar is no longer there. What used to be a cleared patch of rainforest visible in satellite images has been completely repopulated by trees and local plant life, seemingly overnight after the reported mysterious green light. The Heido Corporation has locked down the entire area. No one is allowed to approach the property. Heidel Corp has not yet issued a statement on the occurrence. The locals I managed to speak to this morning are calling it Mal de Deus, or Hand of God, describing it as a miracle. That is truly unbelievable. I'm so sorry, but we have to go to a quick commercial break. Please stay with us as we continue to cover this amazing phenomenon when we return. This news clip may sound familiar to you. It was first broadcast nearly two years ago, marking the beginning of a series of increasingly bizarre events that occurred around the world, known now as the Gaia Miracles. Hello, my name is Barry Orson. You may know me from my other podcast, Humanity in the Background from Nice Guys Media, where I interviewed people achieving incredible humanitarian projects, from bringing supplies to third world villages, to changing global legislation on climate change, to leading political revolutions in war-torn countries. People who are not necessarily in the limelight, but absolutely deserve to be. If you haven't listened to it, please check it out. We interview some amazing people. And I want to thank Nice Guys Media and my producer, J.D. Marshall, for ushering this podcast to life. We will explore the impossible events that made global news, beginning with the healing of the scar in the Amazon, to the deep freeze in the Arctic and northern Russia, to the diamond rush and guerrilla war in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and, of course, the devastating pit on the south side of Chicago that claimed the lives of more than 300 people and the disappearances of 100 more. We will be interviewing eyewitnesses, experts in various fields, victims of the fallout, friends and family of the missing or dead. We will explore the connection between Gaia Prime, the mysterious group credited, or should I say blamed, for the miracles and the aftermath, and the Heidel Corporation, the industrial giant whose involvement, whether benevolent or sinister, is still unclear. We will speculate heavily on the level of involvement of Heidel Corp. Despite what has been publicly announced and what evidence surfaced during the World Court proceedings of the case against Heidel Corp, perhaps we can reach a consensus of how much of the blame Heidel Corp is responsible for, or is Heidel Corp a victim? So whether you are a believer of science or magic or religion, whether you believe the Gaia miracles were an elaborate hoax or an act of God or man or some vague yet menacing government agency or perpetrated by Heidel Corp itself, I invite you on this journey and I ask for an open mind. 
Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Gaia Miracles. They called it the miracle at the scar, the instant forest, the healing of the scar, an environmental anomaly of hypergrowth vegetation, the Amazon event, the happening. Okay, the last one was more of a joke, but it depends on who you ask. It was the first in what is collectively called the Gaia Miracles. The area known as the scar was a privately owned section of the Amazon rainforest, about 150,000 square kilometers, or about the size of the whole country of Greece. It was designated for the production of mainly lumber, but also livestock, soy, and raw rubber material. For environmental groups, the Manaus National Resource Plant was public enemy number one. Because of the rapid deforestation of the rainforest and the usually violent displacement of indigenous peoples at the hands of Heidel Corp. For the lumber industry, the plant was a monopoly. Heidel's lumber machine was nearly the sole supplier of lumber in the world. To Brazil, the plant was the country's golden goose, providing a mind-boggling amount of money and jobs and industrial development for small villages and towns. Depends on who you ask. We've all seen the before and after pictures of the area. Before, the land was completely bare of trees and vegetation, so large it could be seen on satellite images, like the Great Wall of China. It got its name from protesters who said it looks like an enormous scar on Mother Earth's face. Now imagine this bald patch on our planet, overnight, disappearing, covered completely by full-grown trees. It was and still is unexplained. No universally accepted theory exists. Again, it depends on who you ask. God did it. Mother Earth did it. A freak anomaly of evolution. What they called a frantic panic response from the surrounding rainforest. Or, perhaps the most unbelievable, it was all an elaborate hoax. I started this project more than a year ago after partnering up with Elisa Garvey, the reporter in the news clip at the beginning of the episode. Elisa and I are longtime friends and colleagues. We met in Journalism 101, we studied together, we hung out, wrote for the DePaulia, we both interned at the Chicago Tribune, she went into broadcasting and I went the new media route. We often collaborated, sharing stories and sources, we shared Uber rides, office spaces, 3am meals, we had a give or take of praise and criticism in equal measure, and in the spirit of transparency and to preemptively strike out some rumors, and because I think Elisa would get a kick out of it, we were a couple once. It didn't work out. It's fine. In other words, we're close. I respect Elisa as a journalist, and I trust her integrity. Originally, I interviewed Elisa for my other podcast, Humanity in the Background, soon after the event, planning a multi-episode series of interviews following the investigation into the miracle at the SCAR. I took full advantage of having a direct line to the only reporter who had footage of what was the biggest story of the century, and perhaps to date. She came into the studio a few days after her return from Brazil. We had spoken very little about what occurred while she was down there. She only said that I was not going to believe it, but at that point, I, like the rest of the world, was in a state of disbelief. A miracle had been performed. A real miracle in the Amazon. But she was right. Her story was unbelievable. Yeah, we're just set up in here. Barry, darling, I finally made it on your wall. I am honored. I would like purple string, please. That's Elisa before our interview. 
She's referring to a wall in the studio I use as a sort of storyboard to map out episodes, connecting ideas and sources, and she always made fun of my use of string to literally connect different points, like an old-timey detective in a bad thriller or a crazed conspiracy theorist. I played the same news clip you heard at the beginning of the episode. She watched it with a serious face, and she rolled her eyes at the end of it. That is truly unbelievable. I'm so sorry, but we have to go to a quick commercial break. Please stay with us as we continue to cover this amazing phenomenon when we return. About 30 seconds into the commercial break, we lose the satellite link. The live feed shuts off. Then, a military-style helicopter approaches us from the west. It had the steep rumbling engine that rattled the windows of her pathetic little copter. It hovered near us. Gary, who was piloting, and who's also her sound guy, was listening on the radio. The chopper was saying to get the hell out of Heidel airspace, that they were authorized to use deadly force. Authorized by whom? They didn't say. I bet you didn't know Heidel had fighter choppers. Wait, they threatened to shoot you down? That's right. Their message felt pretty clear. And you think it was under Heidel Corp's orders? Yes, unofficially, of course. How can you be so sure it was Heidel and not the Brazilian government or some militant group in the region? First of all, would that make the situation any better? And second, it was the uniforms. I could see enough of the pilot and co-pilot. Heidel Corp's security department uses a very specific shade of gray in a similar style to the U.S. Navy uniforms. They look a little more modern, very distinct, and who else could it have been? Heidel quarantined area, not the government. At least not at that point. All right. Um, we can get back to that. Uh, did you respond to the radio threats? I told Gary to stall, and I told Larry... You're a cameraman? Right. To keep filming. I was trying to call the studio and my boss, Dan, to reconnect the damn satellite feed, but our phones had no signal. They were jamming our communications out. I, I mean, you were in the middle of the Amazon. We had satellite phones. Don't be a smartass. I started narrating what was happening. I figured I could beam it back to the States when we returned to Manaus and also, you know, evidence, just in case. The chopper started circling us, a machine gun mounted to its belly. Wait, 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 wait. A machine gun? I mean, it looked like one to me. Gary said it was probably a spotlight, a big barrel one that could light up a mile of forest, but I was feeling panicky, so it felt very threatening. And on the radio, both in English and Portuguese, they kept screaming to vacate, vacate, get out of their airspace, and directed us to the airport in Manaus. We stayed a little longer. I wanted to get a really good shot of those bastards in that metal monster circling like a damn vulture. Then the chopper made an aggressive maneuver, and it turned a swift 90 degrees and headed right for us, veering off to the side at the last second, way too close. I kept thinking about the might be, might not be machine gun, so Gary got us out of there fast to Manaus. Those thugs followed us, making wider and wider loops as we approached Manaus. Not where we departed from, by the way, but we weren't going to push our luck any further. What? Elisa, I mean... Where did you land then? Someone on the radio directed us to a specific spot out on the edge of the airport, as far from the terminals as you can get. I assume whoever it was was working for the guys in the chopper. There was a hangar out there for smaller crop planes. The isolated area made me nervous, but they were very adamant about us landing immediately. And were you still filming? You bet your sweet brown butt I was. Sweeping shots of all of it. However... Before Gary even shut the engine off, a muddy, unmarked jeep carrying four men in the same gray uniforms, strapped with rifles, yeah, rifles, pulled up to our landing spot. They flashed some government IDs I didn't recognize and told us to get out. 
They confiscated our equipment, searched the helicopter, and put us in rusty cuffs. They locked us in some office space inside the hangar. They wanted to know who we were, who we worked for, where did we get a helicopter, and who gave us permission to fly into the SCAR. So I told them. I am an American reporter and that our studio set up the ride. They asked the same questions over and over and not answering any of our own. It was very melodramatic, very cop drama, trying to sweat us out into confessing, but I knew two things. They weren't going to verify any information we gave them. It would draw unnecessary attention and they weren't cops. And second, they weren't going to kill three Americans who were just on live global television. Or, at least that's what I kept telling myself. And you had no idea who they were? It wasn't the Amazonian government or Manaus police? They wouldn't tell me. I demanded some identification and they would just ignore it and keep asking their monotonous questions, swinging their rifles around. And how long did they keep you? Hours! Hours! No food, no water, no air conditioning in the smoldering Brazilian heat. And then they just let you go? Like back onto the helicopter? No! They said since it didn't belong to us, we had no ownership to take it. And where did you get a helicopter? Well, I have my ways. Meaning? Guess it doesn't matter now. I borrowed the helicopter from a friend. Let's call him Paolo. He owed me a favor. A big one. I met him while covering the Soccer World Cup back in 2004. Four games were played in Manaus' freshly built stadium, a concrete monster. It stuck out among the forests and rivers and shanty towns just outside of the soccer village. But Manaus was very proud of it, and the revenue the tourism generated was unmatched for a city like Manaus. I hired Paolo to fly us around, getting some amazing footage of the stadium and the tourist paradise that grew around it. Then, Paolo had a heart attack, hundreds of feet in the air, passing out right onto the controls. The helicopter went into steady nosedive, heading right for the market square on the south side of the stadium. A panic broke out. People yelling to Jesus and pointing at our tin can of death, careening down straight for them. Luckily, as you know, Larry was there, ex-Air Force. We yanked Paolo out of the seat and Larry stepped in. He pulled us out of the dive in time. My stomach was in my throat and my heart was pushing out of my ass. Meanwhile, Gary and I were performing CPR on our unconscious friend, pounding on that hairy barrel chest of his until we could land on a helicopter pad at the hospital near the city center. Caused quite the riot. The police weren't too happy. Oh my God, you're a menace in Manaus. <laughs> I like that. The menace of Manaus. Yeah, it's not really a good thing. I mean, why haven't I heard of this? Guess you weren't watching your favorite reporter on the nightly news. But any publicity is good publicity. So Paula owed us big time, and I got not one, but two amazing stories for the nightly news that day. Of course you did. Was Paolo okay? Yes! It turned out everyone in Manaus and the surrounding villages knew Paolo. He's like their unofficial mayor. They thanked us and paraded us down the market road, literally lifted us onto a truck, and drove into the parade. They were cheering and throwing confetti and candy and coins. We got to eat and drink until we passed into a food coma. Really? Who is he? I mean, what does he do? Paolo is in the shipping and delivery business. Anything you need discreetly shipped, Paolo's your guy. Discreetly shipped. He's a portmaster of a very important dock on the Amazon River. 
Pretty much anything traveling inland or out to the Atlantic goes through his port. So whatever you need, he can get. Well, that's incredibly vague, but I get your point. Never reveal a good source, darling. But Paolo is a giant teddy bear. He is very generous, gives to the locals, provides food, alcohol, and entertainment to all the local festivities. He's not only the life of the party, he is the party. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're kind of guy. <laughs> um, so Paolo wasn't flying you into the scar that day. Probably afraid to get in a helicopter with you? Probably. Honestly, I'm surprised he didn't stop flying altogether. But no. That day, in the week or so after, no airport in state of Amazonas was allowed to dispatch any low-altitude aircraft in the direction of the SCAR. All helicopters, private planes, including crop dusters and drones, were grounded. Strict government orders. Part of the quarantine. No one was allowed to approach the SCAR. You know, Heidel territory, Brazil's biggest and richest resident. They said it was a safety concern until an investigation was completed. So I called in my favor. And Barry, this is one of those cosmic moments. Don't smirk. Elisa's cosmic moments is the theory, or belief, that there are moments that feel or appear to be planned or scripted by the universe or God or whatever cosmic power that controls everything. To me, it's just giving too much meaning to coincidences, like horoscopes or tarot cards. Elisa and I had many debates on that. Here's the big coincidence. Out of all the ports and shipyards on the Amazon River, Paolo's port is the one used by Heidel Corp's Brazil branch. The man responsible for shipping and receiving all of Heidel's supplies owed me a favor. Hmm. I mean... Let's not. Anyway, Paolo, that giant swarthy teddy bear of a man met us in Manaus early that morning and drove us back to his village to an enormous breakfast. He told me what little he knew, and I asked him to fly us in. Now, Paolo is an old-fashioned man of honor. He would never deny the repayment of a debt, but he gave me two reasons he could not fly us in personally. One, Heidel had already issued the grounding order and sent one specifically to him, not to fly his helicopter. And two, he told me with a serious face that just didn't belong on a character like him. He said, I will not enter that place. I stared at that big ox. I mean, he looked like a cross between Santa Claus and a backyard wrestler. Paolo was scared and not of Heidel Corp. If someone like him was scared of the scar, then I probably should have been too. Scared of what? You have to understand the culture. Manaus may be an industrialized city now, but it's just a toddler, heavily influenced by its history. They are a deeply religious spiritual people. Most residents trace their roots back to ancient tribes like the Siriano, Cubeo, Desana, and Uridi. They still practice old traditions like leaving offerings to spirits of trees and animals for good harvest. They keep their history alive and renewed, often adopting them into other religions like Christianity after the missionaries came. Their brand of Christianity is mashed together with their old beliefs, so Christian saints would take the place of some nature spirit to leave an offering to. Paolo is surprisingly superstitious, unusually pious for someone whose business isn't by the book. He, like the rest of the region, was scared of the scar and what happened there. They truly believe it was either an act of God and the land is now sacred and not to be touched, or 
It was a vengeful dire warning from Mother Earth or the protector of the forest that enough is enough and the man will be punished for abusing nature. But weren't most of the laborers working in the Scar Locals? Yes. They all quit that day. They skirted their only livelihood out of fear of cosmic retribution. Can't argue with fanatics, religious or otherwise. But Paolo let us take the helicopter as repayment of his debt. He perked up to his jolly self and said, Mi niña, you don't need me. You have the best damn pilot in Brazil. He was referring to Larry, which is true. Larry could fly a helicopter through the lobby of the studio. Gary and Larry are the best damn team I've ever had. I trust them with my life. Shit, I have a couple of times. So we flew out, got our exclusive two-minute footage, forced back, arrested, interrogated, and then released to our hotel to pack and forced back onto a plane to the States. We got all of our gear back, but all of our memory cards were gone, both from the camera and the audio. Our phones were wiped clean, even though there wasn't anything on them. And did you confront them about that? We didn't get a chance to. They gave it back to us before boarding our flight, and they weren't too keen on telling us anything. But it was live. It was already out there. They probably weren't watching the news at that moment, but it was just two minutes. Besides that, we had nothing. Nothing to show the world or my boss. When I finally managed to call him on the plane back, he cursed up a storm. Where the fuck were you? We go back to the live feed and it's black? We need the footage. Blah, blah, blah. No thanks. No concern that we nearly got shot out of the sky for that footage. I I mean, it does sound a bit like an exaggeration. The people in that chopper were not playing around. There was a quarantine in effect. Maybe they were just enforcing that. What about the rest? Held prisoner? Interrogated? No IDs? And destroying evidence? I mean, that does seem a bit far. Yeah, a bit. Okay, so what did Dan, your boss, say? As you can imagine, he didn't believe it either. He had the same look on his face that you have now. He said, a corporate giant, the corporate giant, resorted to extreme measures for some measly reporter? Yeah, Dan said measly. You have to admit, it is a big accusation. Look, 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 I'm not saying that what you said didn't happen, but that it was Heidel Corp who was trying to kill you? It's speculation. I mean, a severe speculation. I'm a reporter, Barry. All reporting is speculation until you have the facts. I find the truth. Do you honestly think I would make something up like this? No, 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 of course not. I'm... Okay, what evidence do you have? Heidel Corp quarantined the area. Admittedly, we did violate the quarantine, and they sent the heavy to get us out. They made no public statement for days. Then the massacre occurs two days later, and they blame it on the locals? They destroyed all of our footage and forced us out of the country. It's mounting evidence. It makes them look responsible and negligent. Yeah, but that's not the same as guilty. Do you think a company like that, dipping their fingers into every third world country and industry, doesn't have tried and true methods of silencing a story? They can't possibly silence everyone. I mean, why is no one else reporting a similar narrative? I was the only one who got past them. Barry, something impossible happened. The miracle is overshadowing everything right now. Why do you think no one is talking about the massacre? But soon, people will start focusing on the why and the who. You've known me for more than a decade. Would I speculate like this? Baseless sounding like a conspiracy nutcase? That may be okay in the world of podcasts, but not in real journalism. Oh, okay. But why were you fired, Elisa? Fuck you. Fuck this. Oh, shit. Wait, Elisa. Hold on. Wait.
I edited out part of the conversation here. I freely admit that because of our friendship, I did not handle the interview as professionally as I should have. And for that, I am sorry. But because of our friendship, Lisa and I were able to work back to continuing. I also want to say that leaving most of this interview unedited is to highlight the situation Elisa found herself in. And as you're about to hear, the reason I want her story to be told in her own words. The truth is, I'm being buried alive. My name and credibility has suffered and I believe Heidel Corp and their extended reach is responsible. Because my footage is the only footage available right now, my name is permanently attached with the miracle at the scar. My name is out there providing a target. My story was going to run through the Chicago Globe, local news stations, CNN, and the internet, but my boss, my old boss, Dan Harris killed the story. The biggest story. Dan was acting out of character when I got back. He was visibly stressed out and fuming. He gave me this whole trite speech about public image and evidence, that the Chicago Globe was not the Enquirer or Reddit. He said I needed to drop it and lie low for a while, which is something I have never heard him say before. Usually it's, they mess with the bull, get the horns kind of deal. I started arguing with him. Then he got red faced and said to me that I'm paranoid and he compared me to, quote, a bitch chasing her own tail because she thinks it's following her. Wait, what? Yeah. He said I was a talentless high school wannabe journalist who got lucky and was only good enough to be writing travel blogs. Wait, Dan said that? Dan? There's more. The language got a lot more colorful as it heated up. Then he fired me. Eight years. Eight fucking years of working and writing together, of chasing leads, coffee breaks, all-nighters, red-eye flights, Christmas parties, and some damn good reporting flushed down the fucking gutter. That makes no sense. I mean, we've known Dan for years. He gave me my first job. I, look, I've seen you two fight before. Are you sure he doesn't just need to cool off? No, he meant it. I think he had no choice. Only now, with a cool head, it sounds like telling me to lie low was his way of trying to save my job. What do you mean by that, save your job? This is the part that's going to sound like a conspiracy theorist wet dream, but honestly, I don't give a fuck anymore. I did some major digging, and as they say, follow the money. Stay with me. The Chicago Globe is owned by an umbrella company in telecommunications named Cinder Inc. They own a number of publications across major cities in the US and Europe. Cinder Inc. is owned by the Pearson family. The Pearson family. Old oil and coal barons who have heavy investments in great industries. Specifically, an imprint company called the Heidel Corporation. So... Follow your red yarn back, Barry. What do you think happened? Not to mention, the VP of Heidel Corp is also on the board of directors of the Chicago Globe. So, technically, me and Dan and all the Chicago Globe work for him. He's a despicable corporate man named Jason Bordell, who is just as wrinkled and ugly as a ball sack. He's a guy who argued that the children of an African village downstream from one of their plants were not being poisoned, and if they wanted clean water, they could collect the rain. All that man had to do was tell Dan to stop bad-mouthing Heidel Corp, and I had to go. The worst part is that now, in retrospect, I can see how it was destroying Dan. The pain of belittling me and firing me? I'm sure they threatened him with much worse than losing one reporter. 
I didn't see it while we were arguing. Instead, I called him a coward and packed my desk and left. The article said you assaulted him? That fucking article. The absolute nerve to publish that article telling the world how he fired me and I assaulted him. I wish I had kicked his little balls twice as hard. Again, I see it now. It's not his fault. He didn't have a choice. They forced him to fire me. But I can't let him or anyone kill my story. Especially now, after the massacre. A friend of mine was in Manaus doing interviews when it happened. He said he saw Heidel Jeep speeding in that direction minutes before the gunfire. The media called it a massacre. Heidel Corp called it an unfortunate turn of events, claiming that it was turf war between the indigenous tribes and the citizens of the village. How they were sorry that they couldn't have prevented a tragedy. Complete bullshit and nearly all eyewitnesses' accounts have fallen off the radar. I don't know how. I truly believe that Heidel would have blown us out of the sky blamed bad winds and buried our wreckage in the dirt. Proof. We need proof. I've been threatened plenty of times in my career and I'm sure I will be in the future, but my gut is never wrong. So why? Why was Heidel willing to kill me and any other trespasser? Why go through the trouble of quarantining an area visible from space? What are they hiding? What do they know of the instant forest miracle? I'm going to find out. I'm going to bury the bastards. A week later, Elisa Garvey and her team, Larry and Gary, flew back to Manaus to chase their story. A week after that, Elisa and her team disappeared and have not been seen or heard from since. This part is difficult. It is still hard to talk about. A mixture of heartache and an inability to find the right words. It wasn't unusual for Elisa to go long stretches of time without communicating, depending on where her job took her. So a week after her last phone call, right after she boarded a dingy boat in Manaus, I wasn't worried. I left her voicemails and emails updating her on the news cycle covering the story on the scar and the massacre. A month of radio silence and then the deep freeze dominated the world's media. I was sure she would call. Probably already in Russia, wrapped in a parka, finding some dog sled owner crazy enough to take her north. I started to worry then. I started calling around to her friends and some colleagues. I even called Dan, her former boss, the one she kicked, but he wouldn't take any of my calls. He sent me an email later that he had not heard from her since she was fired. To his credit, he did ask me to let him know when she did show up. I called the friends and family of Gary and Larry that I knew of, but there was nothing. After that, I started to panic. I ended every episode of Humanity in the background with a plea for any information on Elisa and her team, but it filled with useless leads and mostly hate mail from trolls. I begged and I bargained with every contact I had in broadcast and print to report on her disappearance, but most went unanswered. There were more important and incredible stories happening around the world, and at that point it was the Diamond War in Africa. I screened every news channel, newspaper, website, radio broadcast hoping to see or hear her name. I avoided thinking that it would most likely be an obituary or some vague article about bodies found in the Amazon. People disappearing does not have the same finality as people dying. Not knowing where or what haunts you. I thought even a small piece of the mystery would be enough, like they find the boat or a tape washes up on shore with part of Elisa's story on it. So if you have any information regarding the whereabouts of Elisa Garvey, Larry and Gary Wright, a journalism team from Chicago last known to have been traveling from Manaus in Brazil on a small boat, please contact me 
at niceguysmedia at gmail.com or on our website. Thank you for listening. Please join me next week in an interview with a certain citizen of Manaus, the unofficial Mayor Elisa saved from a heart attack in a helicopter. We hear his take on that morning when his city was once again surrounded by a brand new rainforest, the fallout afterwards, and his personal account of the massacre. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to The Guy of Miracles. Hello, you reach Barry Orson. I'm probably busy recording or playing video games, or I forgot to take my phone off silent again. Leave a message and I'll call you back. Barry, darling, you forgot to say probably masturbating. You should have come with me. I've never seen anything as beautiful as the Amazon. Flowers in every color, the weirdest looking things hanging from the trees that I think are fruits, and an anaconda longer than a fucking train, thicker than Gary. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll bring you back a souvenir. How about a monkey? They're really cute. Or a mosquito the size of a quarter? These little nightmares will suck you dry. Or how about a Brazilian supermodel? Barry, they all look like fucking supermodels. Anyway, I think I got a lead on something incredible. It's going to be big. I'll call you whenever we find civilization again. Love you, and don't stay in the studio all day. Bye.